This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. I'm Robert Polly, and it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. And welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. Today, Medicine at the Extremes, a conversation with physician and human rights activist Dr. Ashish Brahma. I spoke to him when he was visiting our area last week, talking about his work in conflict zones in Africa and raising awareness of humanitarian crises around the world. Ashish grew up in the Netherlands, got his MD with an emphasis on public health and tropical medicine. He then served with such well-known relief organizations as Doctors Without Borders, and is currently with the Phoenix Global Humanitarian Foundation. He's based in Uganda. His work has taken him to Nepal, India, Burundi, Ethiopia, and eventually Chad, where he treated refugees fleeing violence in the Darfur region of Sudan. Ashish was for a time the only doctor in a large refugee camp in Chad. And uh, by way of background, the refugees there are black Sudanese, driven out of their villages by the Arab militia known as the Janjaweed, and by Arab-controlled Sudanese government forces in what many have described as an ethnic cleansing or genocide. Let's listen to the interview. Ashish, how does someone end up uh, being the only doctor in a refugee camp of 27,000 people? The reason I was the only doctor, albeit there were about 100 other health workers, but I was the only doctor, and those health workers were refugees, was that our driver got shot in an incident where a car was stolen. He got shot in the leg, shot in the liver, and shot in the lung. And we ended up uh, doing surgery on him, and he got evacuated. And as a consequence, our NGO, non-governmental organization, International Rescue Committee, decided to evacuate all national staff, but for three expatriates, and I was one of those three. And so you end up being in a refugee camp as the sole doctor with a big healthcare team, obviously. How is it that you were the one to remain behind then? I was just the one that was lucky or unlucky, <laughs> however you want to look at it. You wanted to stay. Absolutely. I didn't want to go. I felt so committed to the refugees by then. I, I call them friends, not even refugees. I think it's a false term. These are people that have left their house and, and their goods behind. And uh, for me, it was so important to stay there uh, and to continue with my work. Uh, for them, having somebody with them was so important. That, means that, that meant that they, um, they still had a voice. As people were still listening. And uh, the camp was under attack by Sudanese forces? Well, not directly the camp. There have been many incidences around the camp. It's Urakasoni. It's the most northern uh, camp in Chad, which is a desert-like uh, country, especially the northern part of the country with lots of mountains. And what happens is that uh, rebels from Sudanese side actually hide in Chad and rebels from Chadian side hide in uh, Darfur, which is on the Sudanese, uh, on the Sudanese side, yes. And so um, a clash took place near the camp where about uh, six, 700 people died, uh, young men of the Sudanese government, uh, defeated by Sudanese rebels in this case. We often had rebels from the Sudanese side in our town. Uh, in the refugee camp, there were Sudanese. They are Sudanese. They want to fight for their own independence. So their friends, their brothers, their fathers, they came back to the camp and Many of the people in the camp actually fight in the in the in the movement against the government of Sudan. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of violence. Uh, that's besides that, there were militias running around, people with guns trying to steal items like cars and uh, and goodies like food. Uh, 
and sometimes shooting uh, national staff or international staff. And, uh, yeah, that's a kind of a dangerous situation to be in. How do you practice medicine in an environment like that? I mean, with uh, 27,000 patients, or large number of patients at least, and uh, under attack from time to time. Well, the best thing to say is that, again, I reemphasize that there was a medical team with, uh, with refugees. I had uh, five nurses. I had six midwives. I had uh, a team of 30 community health workers, uh, f about 10 guards, security guards, uh, three ambulances, which were donkeys pulling in patients. Those community health workers went out to the different uh, houses, the so small little houses that the refugees have built, and make sure that those people that are really ill would come to the healthcare clinic early instead of late, when it was too late. So we had a proper uh, search and, uh, and get them in uh, system going on. Now, of course, when you're with very few people, you have to do triage. Obviously, I cannot see all patients. What they would do is the nurses would see the simple cases if there were doubts about the severity of the case, they would ask me to take a look or the other doctor who was available as well, six months out of 12 months that I was there. It's just a while I was the only doctor. Mm. And uh, yeah, how do you practice medicine? Well, the International Rescue Committee in collaboration with the United Nations had a lot of uh, medications available according to basic needs and requirements. Obviously, there won't be cancer treatment, but there'll be treatment for the most common diseases like diarrhea, chest infection, worm infection, eye diseases, and uh, and so on. You make it sound almost simple, but uh, with that many people under such difficult circumstances? It's not simple. The simplest things are, are providing water, for instance. <laughs> and we had a, a water system that took three years to develop. And if you're, if you're here in California, you wonder why it will take three years to, to put in a pipeline. Um, we're the only camp in, in Chad, uh, in the northern part of Chad, where we have what's called a lake, so surface water instead of boreholes. There, there is no water in the, in the ground. The lake was created by building a dam by the Chadian government for the camel uh, herds that would come by. You know, those beautiful camel herds would drink there. And the refugees knew it was there, and that's why they came and fled to Baha'i, which is the place. And Baha'i is about uh, 45 minutes' drive away from the refugee camp Urukasoni. So even putting in something as simple as water is a very complex operation. It took us three to four years to make sure that they got piped water in the camp. And piped water still meant only having about three gallons of water per person per day. And that's for washing your clothes, washing your house, washing your donkey, washing yourself, and drinking. And that's very little. And that's just the water. And I talk about food. Food transports took forever to be delivered. There's these trucks that get attacked by, uh, by Janjaweed or by other militias. People would steal them. And it ended up at one point that um, there was uh, about two weeks there was no water in the camp. We had to truck in water from about 100 miles. Uh, food was hard to come by, so we went down in our rations slightly. And this mainly happens in Darfur. But it also happens in Chad, where there's a relative rest. Well, mm. Relative, mm. there's a civil war going on there semi-permanently. Mm. And yes, it's not easy to work there, but you make do with what you have. What else to do? You said uh, to a uh, reporting team from the TV show uh, 60 Minutes, you, you were interviewed, and you said you had to practice voodoo or bush medicine sometimes. Yeah, I still get haunted by that <laughs> remark because what I really meant is that bush medicine. Uh, bush medicine means that sometimes you treat people as, uh, as animals, as veterinarian doctor almost. And the simple reason is because you don't have a choice. Sometimes there's 10 people that are severely ill that come to you at the same time, and that means that you can only take care of one or two at the same time. Uh, you can distribute the work to your most senior colleagues that are nurses, 
But at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to make calls, and some are calls of life and death, and never a person will be an animal in my book. But it's definitely true that the level of care is much less in a setting like that than it would be in a hospital in the United States or the Netherlands where I come from. And, uh, yeah, that doesn't make it easy always, and mm. it makes it hard even and heartbreaking at times. But uh, that's, I guess, what I meant by uh, by bush medicine. It also comes down to sometimes you have to balance between preventive medicine and curative medicine. And uh, we doctors are trained mainly in curative medicine, but uh, often a buck invested in preventive medicine will give you $1,000 saving in uh, and curative medicine, so you have to balance both things, and it doesn't make it easy mm. because most doctors want to cure patients. There's that word in your profession, triage, where a doctor or a, a medical um, professional has to sort those who can be saved from those who may be more difficult to save and, and treat those who can be saved. Power of life and death in a way. It's not very often you come in a situation that you have to choose, but it happens. And it's uh, not a nice feeling, I can tell you. You have to be very hard on yourself and most hard on your patients. But there's some patients you can put all the time in the world of your life into, and uh, it's not going to help. And sometimes you've got to let go. Were there times when you beat yourself up over decisions you made or a failure to save someone? Well, of course, when you're in a field like that, you make uh, errors and... Um, and definitely sometimes you make mistakes that cost people's lives. But, but uh, to illustrate with a story, there was a lady who came in uh, delivering a child, and she had something called placenta previa, which means that the placenta was in front of the opening of the vagina and, and of the cervix, so the child cannot come out. So the head, the head of the child is banging against the, uh, the placenta, and the woman starts to bleed, and she goes into a shock because she has so much of blood loss. She came to us while she was in labor for 10 hours, I saw the woman, I did an examination, I found that this was the problem. I called in an airplane from, uh, from uh, not from Jemena, but from uh, Abeche, which was our um, referral place. We had a place to refer. We had a, a right to refer any severe case. So we got a plane in the air. By the time that the plane was in the air, I went back. The woman looked in my eyes. She vomited, and she died. She died of a stroke, probably. And then I'm not a surgeon, so it's very hard for me to do a cesarean section, but the child also died. And um, you can look back and say, well, what a total failure. Why were, you not a, uh, why were you not a surgeon in your life? Well, I chose to be an infectious disease doctor and public health doctor. And uh, it's a very complex, well, some people say complex, some people say simple, but for me it's a complex thing to do, and I wouldn't do a surgery that would just be butchering, and that's not fair to do. So... What What is there more to do than what I did? Um, mistakes in the field of medicine, and that's the, the, the beautiful side of the job. If you're a humble doctor, then most family members would forgive you if you make a mistake. If you have an attitude as a doctor, well, then people get angry when you make mistakes. But everybody understands that this is a, a field of life and death and that mistakes are, are happening. And as long as you read up, mug up, and are not uh, too shy to ask your colleagues for advice, being a nurse or a midwife, then it's okay, I guess. I mean, that's that's part of the job. Did you always have this, you know, very philosophical attitude about it, or did it take time to develop that? Yeah, from the age of one. <laughs> 
No, I, I do like philosophy, <laughs> and it's a survival mechanism. I, I used to be very angry with the world for not caring. I do not like the concept of indifference, and I had a talk today, and I, for me, it all comes down to indifference. When this happens to people around the world that are living 10,000 miles or 20,000 miles away, why do we accept it? Is it because they're Muslim? Is it because they're black? Is it because Africans always fight? Is it because we have prejudice? What if this would happen today in Santa Cruz? Would we make, would we make a difference? Would we ask for a, for, a, for a change? Would we ask the Canadians to help us? We would. So why, can't we, why don't we care about the people in Africa or the people in, the, in, in Sudan? It's amazing. Well, you know, there was that um, there was that very interesting incident um, some months back where doctors who I believe were trained in doing field medicine in conflict zones and third world countries actually went to Los Angeles and held a clinic for Americans for to give free medical care, and they treated hundreds and hundreds of people. So that difference between places where you work, like Darfur and Uganda and America, well, that difference is narrowing, I think, in some ways. Well, it's true that certain uh, areas in, uh, in, in, in cities that are less well off in the United States are definitely having the same death rates for children and maternal death rates as uh, certain countries in Africa that are doing well. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, that's a sad thing that a country that is the richest country in the world cannot afford to take care of some of the people living in the country, you know, be it 39 million or 12 million, whatever party you support, if you're a teabagger or not. At the end of the day, uh, there are people in the United States who do not get their proper care, health care, be it cancer care, be it care for chronic disease. And to me, that has the same weight as somebody in Darfur. Obviously, I live in Uganda. I care a lot about African people. I even have a Ugandan girlfriend, but that doesn't mean I don't care about people in the U.S. without a health care. Well, Ashish, as long as you're here in Santa Cruz, how about some free care, huh? No, what? You want some free care? <laughs> I do. No problem. <laughs> we can sort it out. <laughs> we'll talk after the show. Why not? The, the refugee camp uh, we've been talking about uh, where um, people have been fleeing uh, the Darfur conflict and going into Chad, this refugee camp uh, where you worked for a year or so? Uh, it was a year, exactly. A year. Uh, uh, of 27,000 people. What was the name of it again? It's called Urakasoni. Tell me about some of the people you got to know there. Oh, there's an amazing group of people. I always talk and, and maybe, start maybe talking about... Maybe pick a couple of actual yeah, individuals. Yeah, sure. Zara is one. She's a midwife. And uh, Zara is just an amazing person. Whenever I was down, I would go down to her and she would sit me down and sit with a cup of tea and tell me her history. And the way her story is told is always, the, for me, the most fascinating story of the entire camp. She actually saw what happened when she had to flee because the neighboring village got attacked with Antonovs. And Antonovs are big airplanes and they fly over and they started to bomb the village next, the next village. And so she prepared. She prepared her children. And she started hearing cries and screams of people through the air. And she got scared. And then she started smelling burned meat. And then she saw that the cows were being taken away and people chaotically fleeing from the village next door. So she prepared her two daughters and her sister and her two nieces and um, on a donkey and prepared food. And uh, her husband wasn't there. He was somewhere else. And uh, the next day, it was her village that was happening. Just imagine that Santa Cruz gets bombed by a B-52 or by an Antonov, which is the similar thing. And so part of the village got destroyed by the bombing. And then when they wanted to rush away, this was 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, just before it became light, they saw that the village was surrounded by men on horseback and men on camelback and tanks. And they couldn't go anywhere. 
and then the the men rushed into the village and went into the houses and stole whatever was valuable and in the second round they they took away the uh, the resources and the money in in the Zagawa tribe is the is the cattle or the camels and they stole all the camels and the cattle and the third wave they picked women as young as 5 and as old as 95 lined them up and uh, some of them they gang raped and um people were forced to watch and then they took men again same age categories and they shot some of them and they dumped the bodies in the in the wells and then they told the remaining people abit go home flee abit means slave please never say that to a sudanese person and zurgat black because black is the color of of inexpressible hate for sure for the people that did these crimes so she fled in the day and then she was followed by helicopter gunships so at day she couldn't flee she had to flee at night it took her three days to get to Baha'i where this refugee camp finally got uh, built and while she was there things didn't get better for six months they were living there four to six months under the tree with 40,000 people under the trees and one day her donkeys started to die and then children in the village started to die in this refugee camp or this temporary settlement. And finally her sister died of something simple like diarrhea. And um, Zara never gave up. Zara always talks about uh, hope, talks about peace. In fact, when she got her Chadian license to work as a midwife, I was having a talk for her group. There were 10 people who qualified the exams. I was so proud. It was like a father probably feels of his children passing through a school exam. And I was talking and I hear this Antonov and I think by myself, oh my, that's kind of dangerous. This bomber. Yes, that's the bomber. Can we hide? And so Zara stood up and said, Ashis, we've been driven out of our homes once. We're not going to go anywhere. Oh, and by the way, you promised us some dancing and some Coca-Cola. So come up, you show up with your drinks. I mean, having a sense of humor when you're about to be bombed. And actually, they did throw a bomb that day. And, you know, the funny thing is I have a red passport, a European passport. So the moment that it happens, it's UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for the Refugees, that pulls all the resources together, evacuates all the international staff and national staff from Chad, and leaves the refugees behind. So it feels like an embarrassment. It feels like you run away with a tail between your legs. But no, it's the, the responsibility of UNHCR to do that, to protect And, and you have to go when they call? So you've had to evacuate. Oh, I've I've left the camp several times. And you've gone back? Yep. What was the last time you were there? The last time I was working in the camp was from 2006 to 2007. I went back into, um, I'm always confused about the dates, but I went back into Chad to do some more work. I hadn't had enough of violence, I guess, being shot at and hearing guns being pulled every day and being bombed, I, I had a probably savior syndrome where you want to save the world. And I went back into Chad with booming desire to set up an NGO, a non-governmental organization called Africa Vision. And I worked in a hospital and I ended up uh, working as a lecturer of public health at the university in Jemena. And then in February 2007, I think it was, I'm always confused about the dates, forgive me. <laughs> um, the, the, Chad, the Chadian rebels attacked the capital and they... Uh, and they managed to get very close, and I got evacuated and, uh, by the French military. And I was in a hotel that got shot up. But we're, we're drifting away from the refugees, and for me that's more important. Mm. People mm. like Zara that really make a difference. I, I left the country, and I, and I f took a break. I went back to the U.S. I did my 16th tour of the United States talking about this. I've done 170, 180 talks about uh, refugees, and I think it's important. Because they're just as much human as you and I are. You've made friends there. Yeah, we have. 
how do you stay in touch with, how do you maintain a friendship when you are the guy who gets flown out by the UN when, you know, trouble breaks out and they have to stay? Well, they know that it's not my choice and they know that it's the, the choice of the international community to treat people uh, with a different grade. Do, do you stay in touch by writing? How do you do it? Well, the amazing thing is that um, there are non-governmental organizations like IRC who have internet access. So I have my former staff member, my right hand, who um, I write letters to once in a while and I tell him what I'm doing in the United States and I wrote them a letter once in a while and he reads them out to their to the people in the camp and they know about what I'm doing and so they're very happy about it. In fact, I have friends who go to that same refugee camp and they film. Uh, they're a group called Stop Genocide Now and they film with the video cameras, flip cams, whatever it's called. And uh, those images are sent back live sometimes with schools in, in, the, in the Bay Area. Mm. And so there's contact between students in, in San Francisco with, with students from a refugee camp school. So there is communication going on. As far as myself is concerned, for me, a friendship is something that you know, can form and doesn't have to dissolve because you don't see each other. Mm. I know I've never said it, but it's true. I've never said it in any project I worked, but the moment there's peace in their country, I will go back to their village. And I'll see my old friends like Zara, like Adam Suleiman, my, uh, my clinical supervisor, or uh, Osman Imam, who wrote a, he wrote a dictionary about his tribe. The words, the words of Zagawa, they don't have a, a scripture, so they use Arabic and camel letters, the ones, the marks they use on the, to distinguish between the different camels. And he created, recreated their language with all the explanation of the words and the origin of the words. So they believe that they don't want to get rid of their own culture and customs. They, they will be there forever. You can't wipe them out. Even if you destroy 95% of the villages, as was happened. How did you communicate with uh, those people? You, do you speak their language? Well, they speak Zagawa, mainly the women and children, and then Arabic, the men. And so I speak a little bit of Arabic, but mainly in English, and then in French with my, uh, with my Chadian staff. So it was uh -huh. a potpourri, it was a Tower of Babel. Uh -huh. Which wasn't always very easy. <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine it's all, also fun. You once wrote that when you were at the refugee camp, I believe, Chad is in my life to teach me chastity. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> what did you mean by that? Oh, I like the word chadstity. It looks like Chad, I guess. Yes, you uh, wrote it out, chadstity. That's true. Yeah. 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 I don't know. There's something about Chad. It's a very tough country. And, um, yeah, you have to learn to deal with, uh, with abundance in life, to enjoy, enjoy it to your fullest, but also knowing that you can live with the minimal. I lived in a situation for a year eating tin food, and I won't ever complain about it because I saw what the refugees ate. I used to eat with the refugees every single day. They'd share their food with me. I'd just chip in a little bit. So um, I guess that's what you learn, learning humility <laughs> the hard way. <laughs> Eat sand, son. And we'll be back with Dr. Ashish Brahma talking about medicine and human rights in Africa and beyond right after this. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. <laughs> Now, 
Now back to today's conversation with Dr. Ashish Brahma of the Phoenix Global Humanitarian Foundation. When did you decide to become a doctor? I was actually 17 when I wanted to study economics, and before that I wanted to know everything about animals. And then all of a sudden I realized I like to talk, and I like to talk with people, and I actually want to know how the brain works and the physical body. And uh, so I was uh, 18, roughly just before 18, and I filled out my forms the right way. In our high school, if you have a science profile, you can always get into medicine. It's not like this system in the United States where you have to ace your MCATs with a 45 uh, score and uh, get a 99 on your uh, SATs, whatever it may mean, or to 4200 or however high the score can be. We, uh, we give places to all people that want to study medicine, although we give more chance to people in the Netherlands who are scoring high, highly on the science marks, but you get an opportunity. My marks were, I would say, uh, mediocre to me- medium to high, whatever you want to call it, but not the best by far. So the uh, first year I was unlucky. I studied pharmacy, and then the second year they told me I, I could study medicine, and I was so happy. Did you see yourself in situations like refugee camps at that time? At that time, I was a party monster, so I wouldn't really, uh, I wouldn't really say that I was interested in. Uh, I always read a lot about history, and I knew what injustice meant because I went to India twice a year. Oh, sorry, twice a year is a little bit uh, a lot. Once every two years, once every three years, mm. and I remember seeing people growing up on the street. And they were my neighbors. And I remember them still because when I go today, they're still washing the clothes of my family. And they're nice people. And I know them for 40 years now. I'm 38. Your I'm father's from India? Yep. My father's from India. And that is uh, why I, uh, I've seen a big city like Calcutta where poor and rich live next to each other side by side. And I know what injustice means. And I've always known it. So there's somewhere in me, but I had a lot of partying to get out of my system. <laughs> and so by 1994, when Rwanda hit the, hit the, hit the news, I, uh, I got really upset with the, with the world, and I got very negative. And you see, when you're negative, people don't listen to you. You're shouting, and you're over-shouting, and nobody will listen to you. Because the world was standing by while the genocide took place, is yeah, it? Yeah, not only standing by, they're totally ignoring it. In mm. fact, Tonya Harding was more important than, uh, than the whole genocide. So you were aware of it, and you were... I wrote something about it, and nobody responded. It was, not, it was a letter into my student magazine, and I expected at least some people to say something. In the Netherlands? Yep. Nobody hmm. responded. Hmm. And I thought, well, this is another sign to me that people are so aware about their material wealth and forget about what's happening in the larger picture in life. I will go to Africa the first opportunity I get. I was so happy I qualified in 1999, finally. I had some trouble in the end finishing my study because I was not focused. I was doing all kinds of other stuff, traveling and partying. And by 99, I got fed up with it, and I just stopped, and I went to India. You got your MD. I got my MD. I went to India. I went to Nepal, and I said I need some more training. I got an MSc in tropical medicine and a diploma in tropical medicine. And by then, I was a prime candidate and target for Doctors Without Borders, uh, to work for them in different projects. Mm. And so I uh, started my career within Doctors Without Borders. Where did they send you? <laughs> I got a good first opportunity. My first job opportunity was in Burundi. I didn't even read the job. I said, yes, I do it. And they were so happy, I guess, because they had a hard time finding a French-speaking doctor. I just bluffed my way through the interview. I uh, <laughs> spoke, f- spoke some French. <laughs> I used to read French, and I just bluffed my way through. I'm a fast learner of language, so that's a good thing. And... Um, People in Burundi speak French very slowly, so it's nice. Mm. Unfortunately, my colleagues were from <laughs> Quebec, and I still can't understand people from <laughs> Quebec, and that's not French to me. I, some of my happiest conversations in French have been with Africans. 
uh, it's a forgiving uh, <laughs> audience. <laughs> it's very for, they're very forgiving about my hopeless French for sure, and and unlike my uh, my Parisian and uh, and Quebecian uh, <laughs> colleagues, which was a total nightmare. The only person that, that liked me for my French in the in the project was a, a Spanish, a Catalan, I mm. should say, not Spanish, mm. Catalan, mm. and uh, Suki, Doctor Suki, uh, still love him till today. Now, now Burundi had had a, an ethnic conflict sort of like Rwanda's, uh, between Tutsi and Hutus. Um, you went there while this was still going on, while um, well, in, ethnic in fact, fighting was going on? It's similar, but dissimilar in the fact that Tutsis were in power. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it was the Hutus that rebelled. Um, whatever distinction you want to make between two people, that's probably a false distinction. But anyway, that's going into uh, a lot of anthropology and sociology. What, what matters to me is that there's people in power who don't want other people to be in power. And uh, the conflict in uh, in Burundi started slightly before the conflict in in, in Rwanda, and um, led to the uh, Tutsi military to take over. This is already 1993. We're talking about. We're talking. I was there in 2001. But those eight years of simmering violence was going on. And I remember one of my first uh, shows where where show ups of a girl who had been attacked with a machete. And um, I've not seen what the doctors who have worked in Rwanda have seen, but I definitely have seen what the impact of a machete is on a head. She she needed about 35, 40 stitches. You can imagine a two-year-old baby, a ch- girl, child, being attacked with a machete, a big knife, and chopped, almost chopped in two. Well, that's what they did. It's disgusting. That's sculping somebody. And there's, I mean, if you would do it with an adult, I can... You know, with a strange kind of thought, I can say, well, at least it's an adult and there's some sort of fighting going on. But a child? What is wrong with human beings? Did you find yourself getting tough fast? I don't know if you get tough. You just have to deal with it. It's not toughness. And I broke down every once in a while, so I guess I'm not tough cookie. But I would say this, that anybody that works in this kind of environment who doesn't have a breakdown once in a while is unhealthy. Hmm. What do you do to keep your spirits up? I write poetry. I write blogs. I write books. I just published my first book called Utmost. And it's just about my experience in child and how it is to work in a difficult environment. I do speaking engagements, so you can call that therapy as well. I talk about the conflict all the time. By now, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But in all fair, on all fairness, I have great friends. I have great family who love me, who nourish me. I always leave the United States weighing 15 to 20 pounds more than when I come. <laughs> I travel around the U.S. I'm everywhere hosted by great people. How much more love can you want? It's just like a bath of love being given to me. And uh, if the consequence is going on a crazy radio interview once in a while and, and uh, talking to a newspaper, school newspaper, or having a talk at a high school, I think it's amazing. I'm very blessed. Mm. I'm very blessed with great friends, with family who love me dearly and deeply. So what more can I wish for? You still party like an animal? I still like to dance, but I don't <laughs> do any more drugs. Drugs are history. As soon as you got the ability to dispense them, it's a good thing you stopped using no, it, them. <laughs> it, it, it does make a difference, yes. No, I stopped drinking alcohol a long, long time ago. Yeah. So after this initial experience, you know, becoming uh, a member of um, Doctors Without Borders, becoming this kind of humanitarian doctor, was it love for you? Was it something did you feel like this is what I was meant to do? Yeah, I like my work. Unfortunately, my organization didn't like me so much because I was kind of outspoken about a lot of issues. And I was very hard to work with. I had really become a 
I, I wouldn't say a liability. I would guess some people would say a liability. It was really hard on my colleagues. Really Do they hard. have a policy of, of, of keeping their lips sealed about conflicts in order to gain access to people in need, the way the International Red Cross tries to stay neutral? Uh, I would say that Doctors Without Borders definitely has um, has ways of communicating messages, and sometimes they don't do it directly. They will definitely speak out about things, but they will usually use a proxy. Mm. There are organizations like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International that get fed by uh, Doctors Without Borders. But directly reporting also happens. When I was in Sudan, for instance, one of my colleagues was put into jail because they had published a report about Kalma Camp where rape was very common. This was in the beginning of the Darfur crisis. And that re repeated later in the International Rescue Committee doing exactly the same, publishing a report about rapes in refugee camps. And again, two people went to jail. And um, those are intense moments. And it's, it's very hard, easy to sit, criticize humanitarians for not speaking out. It's just as easy as saying humanitarian right activists, uh, they don't do anything about the crisis themselves. They just make it worse by putting oil on the fire. I had this discussion this morning in a, in a class at uh, uh, UCSC. And uh, I said, you know, there are two sides of the same coin. We need both. We need people that have a heart to speak out, and we need people with a brain to actually do something about the issue. And both are very valuable. And uh, we have organizations in a different spectrum, like the International Red Cross will do its best not to pick a side. And that's the reason they have access to all areas. I mean, in fact, they saved our boonies when we had 130 patients with bullet wounds in our, in our hospital. They came to save our... In Darfur? This was on the border of Darfur, yeah. This mm. was in, in Urukasani and behind, right. actually, the hospital where I also was working. I should have there. said in Chad, yes. Yeah, yeah. In, in Chad, yeah. Um, so that's the good thing about the, the Red Cross. And definitely they put their weight on, on governments. They just do it behind the scenes. So what was it that got you in trouble with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières? I mean, uh, well, I guess Doctors that, Without Borders. I guess when you work in very difficult environments, uh, my reaction was not always so positive. So I acted out. I just, uh, you know, I have a difficulty. Specifically? Yeah, a difficulty. Uh, you know, it, it's very hard to remain your calm always. And when you're the responsible for a field hospital with up to 1,000 patients and one morning you wake up and uh, and you see that the ward round has been done in the intensive care in five or ten minutes and that your other doctor and your other medical uh, officers are standing by while one child is actually actively dying of dehydration and you blow a fuse and you get angry and you become abusive you, you raise your voice which is never done in Sudanese custom um, then you get put in a car and you get uh, you get uh, whippled out that quick well, of course, there's not the first time that something. I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm a good boy. I'm not. I, like I said, I'm not easy to work with. I have a heart for my patients. I'll do anything for my patients. I walk through walls for my patients. But what I've learned is that you can't blow up a system. Hmm. You can't be so angry. People are doing their best, even if it's not good. It's still their best, and you have to accept that and respect that. And you can't walk over people's emotions and definitely not shout at anybody at any given time when you're a leadership figure. That's something that took me a long time to learn. I guess most people learn it in the first job. It took me a long time to learn. It just felt that, um, and that happened more often. I had a, a big issue with keeping my, uh, yeah, with my anger under control sometimes. And that's, uh, you know, a sign of, you know, not really being, uh, how to say, balanced in your own self. You know, it's funny, uh, doctors getting angry because of their passion and their desire to save patients and because not enough is being done. That's a staple of medical dramas. I mean, that's kind of my image of a heroic doctor in those circumstances, is someone who would blow a fuse when they saw someone not getting the treatment they needed. 
yeah, but there's still forms of respect you need to have for your human beings. And I always seem to forget how important people make doctors. <laughs> I really don't think they were that important. I think, in fact, doctors are overrated. I think the real work is done by nurses and by midwives, and mm. I'm honest about that. I really think that 90% of the work in the medical field is done, even in the United States, by nurses, midwives, and by medical assistants. We just come by and do the spin doctoring. But the real hard work, of course doctors work hard. I'm not going to say they're useless, but I'm definitely going to say they're overrated. What would you change uh, about that system? Would you reward nurses more? Well, it depends on what system you are. I mean, you can't afford your healthcare system, so I think you're automatically going to shift to a system that's going to have more nurses. But mm. I would say this. In a country like Africa, where a doctor will not work in a rural area, you definitely need to train more people of clinical officer level. That's a three-year training that's equivalent to a doctor, just they don't get the doctor title because the doctor title is five years. And you top them up. And then below that, or above that as you wish, depending on if you find the base of a pyramid more important at the top, I find the base more important, then you train nurses, nurses who are capable of doing a lot of the work as well. And then instead of focusing on the curative side of the work, you work on the preventive side. So you have to be good in vaccinations, early recognition of pregnancies that are at risk, making sure that children with malnutrition are picked up very early. And so instead of fishing behind the symptoms and treating symptoms, we're actually thinking ahead of the problem, thinking ahead of the curve. That would be great if we can do that. What do you think the most effective money that could be spent in places like the ones we're talking about for prevention, for very cost-effective treatment, what do you think the most effective expenditure would be? Oh, it goes one step further. That's to say that uh, ignorance is the root of all evil, and therefore we need to have a universal uh, literacy and universal women taking over. And to quote Aristophanes and Lysistrata, it's clear that when women are given power that everything comes uh, back on its normal uh, events. That is to say, war ends between Sparta and Athens after 50 years of clangling on in the Peloponnesian War. It's the women who force the men to stop fighting because of a sex strike. I think it's amazing. The creativity and the humor of women will often lead to a more inclusive way of leadership and a more inclusive way of to running a society. I think we need to listen to the women in the world more. Where have you seen that in practice, where women running the show has resulted in better outcomes? Well, uh, historically in the Aristophanes. Aristophanes, but, yeah. But practically, <laughs> practically... Uh, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who is the uh, Sirleaf Johnson, who is the president of, um, let me think very hard now. Liberia. It's Liberia indeed. Um, who's doing a great job. We should have more of her. Yeah, we Bachelet, did. Bachelet in Chile. Listeners to this show actually might remember uh, a segment we did on Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and, and her um, largely female government in Liberia. Yeah. Well, it's not only in Africa we need to do that. It's time that you guys get a female uh, president. You know how long have you? How many presidents did you have so far? So you're a Hillary supporter? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm no supporter of nobody. I like uh, your president Obama. I like Hillary Clinton as well. She's a very sharp woman, but I think um, President Obama has more humanity in her. And I know that a lot of people won't like what I say, but when I see uh, Hillary Clinton, I don't see somebody who really represents the, the feminine strength. It's not that because she's a hard woman that she's a good woman or a good leader. I think she can show more compassion as a, as a leader. And that's not the type of woman that I would look for. You see, Sir Leif Johnson is definitely a different kind of leader, and so is Bachelet. She's a single mother of, Bachelet. Four, of Chile. Chile. You know, everybody was saying to her, oh, you're doing a bad job. Why are you not spending the money? Well, economical downturn came, and now she has money to spend, okay? She did better than this, this, this government did or the previous government or the previous government, as you wish. 
But to talk about more concrete levels of where women power makes a difference, in the refugee camp, 90% of the people living there are women and children. And that means there's only 10% of men. That means that women get more leadership roles. And they tend to be more creative in looking for solutions. There's less ego clash. I'm not going to say that men are useless. Again, I'm going to say that they're overrated. <laughs> My solution to all is doctors and men are overrated. I happen to be both. What to do? Have to well, modern it. medicine could change that for you, yes? Well, no, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm happy with what I am, overrated and all. <laughs> Working in Africa where you, um, where you currently live, you currently live in Uganda, um, have you seen an impact of the Obama presidency? Have you seen changes as oh, a result? Absolutely. From yeah. the moment you guys selected the, the right man for the job, uh, whole Africa changed there. Actually, they do like Bush because Bush sent a lot of money to Africa. For HIV. For HIV AIDS. Yeah. And he's well respected for being a Christian. You might, can't forget the impact that Christianity has had in, in Africa. But at the same time, the fact that uh, your president is currently half Kenyan is, uh, is an, and in an African tradition. He's a Kenyan. So oh, uh, in, in American birther tradition as well. Yeah. Well, you know what go. I'm talking about. Yeah. Those people who dispute his citizenship. It's good for them. <laughs> you can believe in fairy tales. It's allowed. <laughs> Even adults are allowed to believe in fairy tales. But you did see an impact there. Yes. Um, I think you see it all over the world. I see it more in Europe. My mm. friends, uh, I go back to Holland once in a while, once a year, twice a year. And the attitude towards the United States has changed from day to night. Night to day, excuse me. People were very negative about the... Uh, you know, the bullying role that the United States had taken on itself for the last uh, Rumsfeld years and uh, and Karl Rove years, and uh, it's not the Bush years, clearly. There was a group behind uh, Mr. Bush. But I'm talking about politics. I'm not a politician. Let mm. me say let me say this. I uh, I honestly think that uh, whoever the United States chooses to be their president, he deserves to be the president. The thing is, the impact on the rest of the world is hugely different, and uh, President Obama is is loved. It's not for nothing you got a Nobel Prize after three days in, in office. You don't think that was premature? I think it was premature, yes. Oh. I think you got it anyway at one point, mm. but I think it was premature. Mm. But some people would argue, yes, uh, now everybody has changed their mentality about the United States. That may lead to a more detente in the world. Everybody would be happy uh, to see the United States coming on board, more um, less isol uh, isolated from the world and more trying to collaborate. And I think that's a great mind shift and a paradigm shift and inclusiveness is something, a familyness, one family thought is something that we should have all over the world. You ultimately left uh, Chad, um, the refugee camp where you had been working, and moved to Uganda? Yes, uh, I did. Um, as I said, I got evacuated out. I took a, I took a tour of South America, I guess, and uh, I did some tours of the United States talking about the uh, incidents happening there. And then decided to go to, a P I went to South Sudan to see if I could work there. I went to Uganda and I decided Uganda is the best place for me. Why? It's, a, it's called the Pearl of Africa by my, uh, by Winston Churchill, I should say. And it's true. It has everything you want. It has the perfect climate. It has nice people. It has all the seasons that you, that you wish for. It has the, the mountains. It has the hills. It has the rivers. It has the lakes. It has... Um, birds till you drop it has monkeys and i like animal life it has food and the most important thing it has great people mm. and uh, different uh, ethnic backgrounds but it gives a, a very nice opportunity for me to work in a country that has enough of issues of its own i mean one million people living with hiv aids that's roughly the same as the united states but we only have 32 million people living there that means that one in 32 is inf infected uh, probably it's more than one million but the official number is three percent 
Three percent of the population. Well, officially, it's three percent. It's three percent. It's one million out of thirty-two million people. But oh, I think the total it's more. population. Yeah. Wow. And you have three hundred and twenty million people, roughly, and one million people are infected. Uh huh. So that's zero point three percent. So factor ten. Right. And and reality, probably there is one and a half million people living mm-hmm. with HIV/AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can imagine that that's a, a huge, huge issue in a country that already has only two thousand doctors. Who who are you working with? What organization? And and what are you doing now then in Uganda? Oh, I'm doing a, a plethora of activities because I like to be uh, keeping myself active. But the one thing. I work for is called Phoenix Global Humanitarian Foundation. It's a grassroots organization where we try to get uh, work done in three different ways. First of all, we try to get volunteers over, specifically seasoned volunteers who can teach and learn while they're on the job for short-term missions. The reality with economical downturn and, and people in the U.S. having only 10 to 15 days of holiday a year means people can only come for a short time to volunteer. So when we find somebody to come over, we'll hook them up with a similar person of similar level, and then there can be an exchange of thought, a knowledge exchange more so than a, a one-way, oh, the American is coming to save Uganda. What kind of work can a person do in that short a visit? In, 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 in reality, probably a li- limited amount of work, but you can think about the teaching English classes or helping construct a water well or helping out with uh, constructing a small little orphanage or making sure that certain specific uh, knowledge facts are transferred about uh, clean water. And this is all medical I'm talking about, but obviously you yeah. can also talk about the educational field. Um, in a short while, you can do a little, but it's not about the impact that you have. It's the fact that you showed up. It's the fact that you're trying to connect and reach out, and it's the fact that this person now can communicate with you through what's called modern technology. It's called Internet. So you can now have a friend in Uganda mm. and who you can talk with once Tell us more. again the name of the organization. It's called Phoenix Global Humanitarian Foundation. There's also a terrible conflict that's been going on in Uganda for quite a long time in the north, Yes. Yes, that conflict has actually shifted now. It's uh, an interesting story because um, some people in the United States would want to make believe that there's a genocide going on in Uganda right now. There's definitely fighting going on in Uganda. However, the people that were the instigators of this violence is a guy called Joseph Kony. And Joseph Kony thinks he's Jesus Christ and that he has a right to create an army of uh, sex slaves and child soldiers. This is the Lord's Resistance Army. The Lord's Resistance Army, indeed. Kind of a cult-slash-rebel movement. It's beyond cult, I believe. They're totally crazy. They drug the children and do such ferocious deeds with them, like uh, making sure that they kill uh, family members or rape mothers. So they can never go back to their community. Now, they have been fighting for 15 to 18 years in Uganda. And in 2003, the Ugandan people got fed up with them. Sorry, 2003. Yes, I was there in Lira when we were attacked the last time. Not that because I was there, but it just happened to be close to one of the last attacks that Joseph Kony mustered in, in Uganda. Then slowly he was pushed out of Uganda into Congo. By the, by the Ugandan army. You wonder why it took them 15 years to push him out. The Ugandan army is quite strong, sponsored by the United States, by the way, and um, was pushed out to go to Congo now. And in Congo, they reaped the same ha- havoc. And then from Congo, they were pushed out into a Central African Republic. And currently, they're in the southern part of Sudan. And some people say he's even in Darfur. So he's being chased around the, the map of the world. Um, he has 80 wives, roughly. And uh, many children, and it's said that he has dropped his children off at the Sudan in Sudan, probably in Darfur. Uh, he's been supported by the Sudanese government, likely, and that's why he was creating havoc in the north. Currently, when the conflict is going on in the north, 
It's between the people living in the north, and it's on a much lower intensity than ever before. Oh well, that's good to hear. It's it's not. I would you know. I, it's hard to say it's peaceful, but uh, I have friends working there, and there's about hundred NGOs there. So in mm. Gulu alone, or in Lira, there's mm. about sixty. So the work you're doing in Uganda now doesn't really involve warfare at this point. Uh, not yet. Not because yet. Say. <laughs> I live in the West, and the West is lying next to North and South Kivu, where you find Coltan and where there's rape going on as a uh. weapon of war and where there's a lot of war. Now, again, we're talking make, about the Congo. We're talking about the Congo conflict and the one that's totally out of control. Gigantic war. Yes. Well, the war is actually. The the people that are fighting are actually remarkably few. We're talking about thousands of people, not tens of thousands. But the th problem is that those thousands of people chase away millions of people. And so uh, several million people are on the run in Congo. So when I say gigantic, I mean in terms of death toll, human toll. Yes. Mill millions of people. Well, not even uh, death only, but what about rape? What about mm. if the question is not how many times, uh, if a woman has been raped in her life, but how many times this year? Yeah. And that's the, the horrific level yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's sad to hear these things, but they're they're happening, and we're allowing it to happen again and again. I remember a generation before me saying this will never happen again, and we've just closed our eyes to what happened in Pol Pot in Cambodia. We close our eyes what happened in Bosnia. We close our eyes to Rwanda. I would say we're not even chicken because chicken at least they run away. We just closed our eyes and became indifferent. How does that indifference still exist after all those genocides? Now, I don't want to laugh about it. I don't want to cry about it. I don't want to get angry about it anymore, but I want to get passionate about it and put it in people's face so they can say, well, maybe it's time to wake up. Who in the world do you think is doing a good job of addressing um, genocide, humanitarian crises of the, of the sort you're talking about? Well, there's a couple of organizations that I really respect and the individuals they're in. So as an individual, I like John Prendergast from Project, Eno uh, Project Enough. He wrote a book called, um, uh, I can't forget, I forgot the name right now. I'm blanking. Not on Our Watch is the name. It's a great book, activism book. He wrote several books with Don Cheadle, this one. He wrote about eight books. I love that guy. He's really great in, you know, whipping up attention for uh, a... Um, constituencies of people that do not accept genocide anymore and they want to prevent it. And then there's another group of people called the Genocide Intervention Network, started up by Mark Hanius and some friends, Sam Bell and several other people. And they're great. They're young people that are so creative at finding solutions uh, and pressuring government, pressuring business into taking a stand against genocide because genocide doesn't have a constituency. You see, if you're pro or against abortion, pro-life or, or pro-choice, that makes a huge impact on your voting pattern. If you're pro or, pro or against guns, that makes a big difference. And if you care about euthanasia or not, that's a big thing in the United States. But if 800,000 people get killed in Rwanda, it doesn't make a damn, sorry, it doesn't make a difference at all about your voting patterns. And that's sad. Because the life of a Rwandan or the life of a Bosnian or the life of a Cambodian or the life of an Iraqi is worth just as much as the life of an American. However, we don't seem it that way. We seem to well, see it that way. Well, well, 
Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying it doesn't make a difference in voting patterns because it's never an issue that's put before the voters by mm -hmm. politicians. That's never even something that's brought up in campaigns. Well, it's not that we can we can blame the politicians, but why don't we blame the people that are not? It's not a blaming game, but let's look at it from the perspective of a voter. So we, we take these very important issues like abortion, euthanasia, and gun control, and that's more important than anything else. Right. We vote for governments on the basis of those three key issues. Why can't we add on to that very important portfolio of three things, a fourth one, and that is how much is my government doing to prevent genocide in the world? Because that's just as disgusting as an abortion is for some people, and for, for all people, murder is horrific. And I don't want to put them in the same category, mm -hmm. by the way. What do you think of the UN? We're talking about organizations and how effective they are. What do you think of the UN? The United Nations is uh, as strong as it wants to be uh, held by the strongest nations in the world. We have this strange situation that we have a Security Council with five countries that happen to be the biggest weapon dealers in the world, Russia, China, United States, France, and the UK, who also happen to be five nations that contain nuclear weapons. Can you explain me why those Mickey Mouse countries have a vote to block the opinion of 203 other countries? Veto power. Yes. Why? But having said that and taking a nice dig at the Security Council, I would say the United Nations is the best that we have. We have no other international organism that goes anywhere close to what the United Nations mm -hmm. is. And despite the cowardice that we have shown over the last couple of years, we've also shown resolve in trying to get things solved. The problem is that many countries, like the United States or India, decline to sign up to the international agreements, and if they do, they do not follow up. And mainly they sign up and do not follow up. Um, not, sometimes they don't sign up. For instance, we have what's called the International Criminal Court in the, in the Hague, and the United States, surprise, surprise, hasn't signed up because they don't want their soldiers to be tried by foreign powers. Mm. Well, how can you then make an impact on Sudan, which also... Eh? It's, it's not so rocket science for me. It's a beautiful organization that we don't give enough tools to work with because we're fearful to give away our autonomy. And that's a fear-driven society. That's the same when I come to the United States every single time and I hear the United States TSA is informing you that the current security situation is orange. It's been orange since September 11, 2001. That's eight years ago. I agree that there's issues in the United States, but can we please also live in a normal society? Ashish, how do, how do you survive financially with what you do? I mean, uh, maybe I'm mischaracterizing you, but I get the impression that you're sort of um, a freelancer in a way. I mean, you've worked with a lot of different NGOs. You've gone to various places and, you know, done what m you're most passionate about. How do you survive? I don't. I'm <laughs> basically <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> but to give you the real answer, I don't believe that banks, bankruptcy lies in an in a empty bank account. I lived very well for a long time. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I'm currently going to go back to school to get a proper PhD to become a proper professor at a school. You are? What? Uh, you, you're going to become a professor? Oh, well, that's my dream. Can I have a dream? Do you think a guy like you could be happy in, in academia? Well, part-time, yes. <laughs> 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 what do you want to teach? Medicine? R rabble rousing. <laughs> I want to teach anything that stirs people up. Uh, I'll do a lot of things. I wrote a book. I just finished a book called Utmost, which you can find Utmost, on the website yes. of Wheatmark, www.wheatmark.com, um, or under my name, Ashish Brahma, and you Google it. I am going to make a documentary. And there has been a time now for two years I've really worked as a freelancer, and I've come to the realization that this is not a sustainable nor a thrivable way of living. My bank account is now officially empty. 
And uh, that's okay. I believe in the power of, uh, of will and it will come. And uh, that also means that now I have to be humble and uh, probably um, uh, get a job that pays again. So I'm looking to uh, to find a job in Uganda that will pay me a little bit of money to survive. And I'll still try to come to the United States once or twice a year. Well, you've got an MD. You could get a little uh, pocket change with that, couldn't you? Yeah, and I, but I work in a country that pays me uh, po- pocket change mm-hmm. indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, reading some of your writing, I, I, I understand that you have not only this great humanitarian um, streak, um, but also a spiritual streak. Yeah, it's something I don't really talk a lot about because uh-huh. I think that's what you need to practice instead of preaching. Mm. And many people uh, preach without practicing. And um, But I'll say that I'm interested in many different streams of, of philosophy, and one of them would be uh, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and definitely shamanism from the United States, uh, from the original inhabitants of this place, mm-hmm. because there was a genocide here as well. Lest we forget. Yeah. And, uh, and I think... Um, one of the ways to keep your mind and heart clear is to live a spiritual path. And that means that you have less desires in a material sense. Although I just went down on a splurge and bought myself a Mac yesterday and a flip cam. But I, my excuses or my, my reasoning is that if I can get films out there and if I can get books out there, at least people can read. And they can no longer say, habe es nicht gewusst, like mm. the Germans said after the Second World War. I didn't know what was happening. Mm. And uh, I'm not here to lecture. I'm just here to tell stories. And hopefully people can pick up. I'm not here to judge because it's very easy to judge. I know I've passed very harsh judgments over the last couple of minutes and hours. But at the end of the day, I'm a very forgiving person. I hope that people can forgive me as well Hmm. for being who I am. Well, we forgive you. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you. Dr. Ashish Brahma lives in Uganda, and he's on the medical leadership team of the Phoenix Global Humanitarian Foundation on the web at pghf.org. That's pghf.org. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, do stay tuned. The Latin Quarter with Brett Taylor is coming right up.